God, we, <clears throat> we thank you that you are God. We thank you that you are the one true God and that you are an all-powerful God. Lord, you are mighty to change hearts and lives. You are mighty enough to be able to create the whole universe and to sustain it with your very word. And so it is you, God, that we come to worship this morning, to give you praise, because you are worthy of all praise. You are all-powerful, Lord, and you move in hearts and you move in lives. And Lord, I come this morning and I ask that uh, as your word is preached, as your word goes forth, that, Lord, we will be reminded of what a mighty and awesome God that we have. The one God, the only true God who can save and change lives and hearts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we come to worship you. And Lord, we want to worship you as we even hear from your word, as we seek to apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray that you might move in our hearts in a mighty and powerful way to take the truth that you have to share with us and that we might apply it to our lives and see you glorified. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray, and all God's people said. If you would, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And if you, I don't know about you, but I, I enjoy uh, having the kids in here with us. It's a joy to see them uh, sing and then sometimes talk about baseball and work on their baseball swing. As the two in front of me were doing, but it's... Uh, it's a joy to have them in here. And we do have a, a mighty God, do we not? And he's the God whom we should go to and that we should live in utter dependence upon to change and transform not only our lives, but the lives of, of others, particularly those who are without Christ. D.L. Moody, the great uh, evangelist from Chicago, was reminded of this in 1872. He made a short trip to England for rest, and while he was there, he had no intention of preaching, but uh, as happens with preachers, sometimes you get uh, wrangled into uh, to preaching on certain occasions. On this one occasion while he was in, in London, a, a congregational minister came and asked him to preach and to come that Sunday morning, that Sunday evening, and Moody consented and Although the morning service was marked with a smug, what he described as a smug, indifferent drowsiness. So much so that Moody regretted uh, his acceptance of this service opportunity, this opportunity to speak. At the evening service, he, he gave an evangelistic message. And he asked uh, all, <clears throat> all those who were present, who had decided to receive Christ, to rise. And to his astonishment, hundreds of people arose at that service. He was so astonished because of thinking of what it was like in the morning that he actually had everyone sit back down and he repeated everything again and make sure everyone clearly understood that the reason they were standing was that because they were coming to accept Christ. And again, 400 people, as it was, stood to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. Moody was astonished, and he began to make inquiries of what was the difference? What happened? What was the difference from Sunday morning of indifference, spiritual drowsiness, to the, the place of 400 people coming to accept Christ? And then he learned about a bedridden girl named Marion Adelard. 
she had read about Moody's work in Chicago and she had actually read this report and she had put it under her pillow. And she began to pray that God would send Moody to her church to proclaim the gospel. And that morning of that lifeless service, Marion's sister came home and had told her that uh, a preacher named Moody had come to their service. So Marion actually had sent everyone out of, their be- out of her bedroom and didn't want anyone to bother her. And that whole afternoon, she went before the Lord and prayed for her church. And she prayed as the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it was preached from Mr. Moody's life, that it would have powerful effects and change hearts and lives. In the midst of those hours of prayer on behalf and before that service of the evening, God even gave her the settledness of her heart in her heart that a revival was going to happen. And so it did. And as Moody uh, heard that story, and as Marion promised, as he visited with her to hear about this, she promised that she would pray for him the rest of her life. And Moody was, was deepened in his heart with the importance of making intercession for the lost a primary aspect of his ministry. To pray for the redemptive work of Christ. I tell you that story not so that you're convicted by the work of a renowned evangelist. But to remind you that the power behind the evangelist, the power of the gospel that goes forth. Is not about the man, but it's about the God to whom we pray. The God who is mighty to save. The God who can change and transform lives. That's the one that makes the difference. And it's that God to whom you and I are called to make prayer a priority in our life that we might call upon that God who can change lives and bring people to faith in Christ. That's my exhortation to you today. That we might be a people of dependent and desperate prayer calling upon the God to change the hearts and lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the book of First Timothy, where we're going to be at today in chapter 2. This letter is written from Paul to his young protege, Timothy. Timothy is serving as the pastor in a church in Ephesus. And this letter is written to encourage Timothy. Timothy, who seems, as we see from Second Timothy, to be kind of a timid spirit. Kind of at times lacks some courage. And so Paul in 2 Timothy reminds them that uh, it's not him, but it's the Spirit of God in us that gives us courage and strength. But he writes this letter, and part of it is to exhort him to, one, to bring about correction of teaching to the church at Ephesus. The church in Ephesus, you see in chapter 1, has been being influenced by a false gospel. Of Jesus Christ, a gospel that in essence said that not only do you, uh, is it enough to have Christ, but you also need to be a Jew or at least a Gentile proselyte to Judaism. And so he's exhorting him to uh, combat that and correct that kind of teaching and idea. And then in chapter two of First Timothy, he begins to make some exhortations about 
what it should look like inside the church. How should the church operate in worship and in congregational gatherings? And look what he says there in chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1. He says this, First of all, then, I urge you, I urge you that, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Notice that as you, as you look at your text, notice what, this, this, what he says this. He says, first of all, you might even underline that. First of all, he doesn't say now second, not third, not fourth, not fifth. Not when you feel like it. Not, let's just tag that on to the end of the service because we're supposed to pray. He says, first of all, I even think the sense of, of the, the, the idea, the phrase here, first of all, has more to do with the, the permanency of, of, of prayer in church. Not so much the sequential, not such as we do this first and this second. But he's saying this is important. This should have primacy in your, in your church. This should make, be a priority in what you do. Is to pray. The reality is, is that, at least in my life, prayer can often be something of last resort. We've got a problem, and I, and I start being the problem solver I like to be. I try to like, think of all the things we need to do when, when God's saying, no, first of all, you need to pray. You got a problem with your child and you can't figure it out, then first of all, you take that into prayer. It's first of all. There's a book by Bill Hybels, and I've never actually even read the whole thing. I've got about 50, 100 books that way. There's a book by Bill Hybels, and I've read some of it, but really the thing that marked me the most was just the title of it. That, that spoke enough, just the title, and here's the title of it. Too busy not to pray. It's the title of the book. Isn't that true? You and I are too busy. We've got too much stuff going in our life that we, we, we can't afford not to pray. We've got spouses to love. We've got children to take care of. We have job demands. We have the trials of life. We can't afford to let those things push prayer as a priority in our life out. And what he's saying here is, Timothy, your church, when it's gathered, a priority needs to be prayer. You say, well, why? Why make church, why make it a priority to have prayer? Well, first of all, prayer is an act of faith. It's the very way God has called us to live the Christian life, by faith. What better way to express that prayer when we go to God in faith and dependence, calling on Him to act and to work? In order to live the Christian life, we must live it in dependence upon God by faith. And we express that when we come to Him in prayer. One thing I'm convicted about is the reason that we often do not pray more is the reality is we don't know how much we really realize or we don't believe how much we really are dependent upon God. The reality is many of us aren't desperate enough for God. Now, there's a place for confidence, but it must be a godly confidence that is, that is encompassed by utter dependence upon God in all that we do. 
Second thing of why prayer is a priority in, 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 in the church is because prayer brings God to bear on the situations we are facing and the people we are trying to minister to for the cause of Christ. It ought to be the first thing that we do. It ought to be the preeminent thing that we do. So that we might bring the God who is mighty to save, the God who is all-powerful, our God who reigns, that we might bring Him to bear on everything that occurs in our church, in our life. So prayer, we must make it a priority, not just an add-on. Now look what Timothy says. He says, I urge you. It's not a command, but a, a passionate plea. Paul is speaking from the passion of his heart here. He says, I urge that entreaties, this has the idea of, of specific needs. In prayers, that is, it's, it's, the, it's a general term for prayer, but it it's, it's encompasses a reverence for God, of, of bringing things before God. Petitions, that is, speaking with strong appeal on behalf of yourself or someone, and, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men or, or all people. For kings and who all are in authority. Now, you've got to remember this, as Grant mentioned last week, the, the king or the emperor at that time was Nero. A heinous man who did despicable things. But Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, you need to give prayer to that. You need to pray for that person. Pray for their soul. And also, by the way, give thanks. Wait, give thanks? Give thanks for our government. Hey, can you think how crazy and chaotic it would be if we had no government? There's reason to give thanks. But what I want us to notice from this passage, though, is what he's calling on here is that we pray with an outward focus, not just an inward focus. Now, we are certainly called and repeated commands throughout Scripture that we pray for one another, that we uphold each other in, in, in prayer. That we even pray for each other in the cause of witnessing for the cause of Christ. That, that's encompassed in, in all people here. But you'll notice, though, that what, what he is saying is, but it, it needs to go beyond that. As a result of, uh, uh, of this idea that uh, there was this gospel that uh, you either had to be a Jew or a Gentile proselyte to Judaism. I think Paul is in some ways fearing that what is happening here is that because of this, people are becoming exclusive instead of thinking outside of themselves as well. We have a habit of doing that in the church. We like to do what we call a... a we, we, the, the temptation in the Christian walk is always to form a sort of holy huddle. A holy huddle. I like huddles. I've been involved in athletics. But we, we like to call a holy, holy huddle that we, we, we tend to, to never break from. Now, again, let me get, get you right. We need to get in holy huddles at times. That's why we do this on Sundays. We come together. That's why we get in small groups there so we can, we can huddle up and we can encourage each other in the faith. We can strengthen each other where we're struggling. We can equip each other. But the danger is this, is when the holy huddle stays huddled. That's the problem. Because what, what Scripture is saying here, what Paul is saying here, is that when you're huddled, you also need to start taking a look outside of that huddle and see who's not in it. And those people who aren't gathered in that huddle, those are the people 
that you need to be praying for. That you need to be making petitions for and treaties for. And in some ways even giving thanks for. Because they're not on the team yet. And we can't be stuck in our huddles, but we gotta we got to pray for those outside that huddle. And eventually we got to put the hand in the middle and we got to break so we not only pray for them, but also go and proclaim the gospel that they need to hear as well. One of my greatest fears as we enter in to this building campaign here in the weeks and months or ahead when God decides it's time for us to do that, as we look forward to building, one of my greatest fears is not will we have enough money to do what God calls us to do. One of my greatest fears is that as we build a building, and I think we're building it with right motives, is that we come, become comfortable with that building. And we, we come comfortable with it in such a way that it becomes just a place we just huddle. When in reality, the, the intent for the building is so that we might do ministry here to equip one another, to strengthen one another, so that we might go out And reach those who are not yet know Christ as their Savior. That's why I think Paul is writing this. He says, don't just think about yourself. Don't just be centered on yourself and what you need, but think also about those out there. One of the greatest uh, cures, and not the only cure, but one of the helps with selfishness and depression is to think of others, to pray for others, to turn out of our own personal huddles and look for others outside. I think that's what Paul is calling us to. He says, may, may we pray with an outward focus, not just an inward focus. But why? Well, look what it says there in, in verse 2. In order that we may lead a tranquil, that it has to do with kind of more of an outward peace, and quiet life, seeing an inward calm, in all godliness, godliness having to do with an attitude of reverence to God, and dignity, that's the outward manifestation of that attitude in our behaviors. In essence, what, what Paul is saying here is that one of the reasons that we pray for those out there It's the reality that God can use those kings and those in authorities to make the environment in which you live more peaceable and so that you should have an opportunity to live out your faith in a way that is exemplary for the cause of Christ with all godliness and dignity. See, see God is sovereign over all kings. In all authorities. It may not look like it at times, but he is. As I was thinking about this, I was just thinking about some of the the empires in the past. And I thought about the Greek Empire. And one of the things that the Greek Greek Empire did is the Greek Empire brought a common language amongst the, the people of that region. The Greek language. Guess what is the the language, the original language of the New Testament? Greek. So there's a common language to go and to to spread throughout the the, the whole empire. And I think of the Roman empires, and they're great engineers, and 
one of the things that the Romans engineered was roads. So that at the time that God had set for the gospel to go out through his apostles, there was roads to reach all the major cities. See, God was sovereign in this. And God is still sovereign. And he's still moving and shaping governments, even though in the spite of their wickedness at times, God can shape and move governments to accomplish his mission. I was reminded of the of the falling of the wall in Berlin. And I, and I picked up this story. It said in May 1989 at Leipzig in Germany, at the historic St. Nicholas Church, where the Reformation had, had been introduced nearly or exactly 450 years early, earlier, a small group began to meet in one of the church's rooms to read the Sermon on the Mount and to pray for peace. The group expanded and moved to a larger room and finally began to meet in the church's nave, which began to fill up. Alarmed, the communist authorities sent officials to attend. They threatened the gatherers and temporarily jailed some. On prayer nights, they blocked the city's nearest Audubon off-ramp. Then on October 9th, 1989, some 2,000 individuals crowded in to pray for peace, and another 10,000 gathered outside. And soon, the Berlin Wall came down. Coincidence? No. This is the kind of response that a caring, all-powerful God makes when his people cry out to him to do only what he can do. God can move governments. God can move kings. He can move authorities to accomplish his will. And we need to pray for them that God's glory will be accomplished There is benefit for us when we obey God's call to pray. But what is at the center of this call? What is at the center of of, of Paul's plea to Timothy here? I want to suggest to you that this call to priority, particularly for prayer for the unbeliever, that is centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a gospel-centered call to prayer. Look with me to verse 3. Verse 3, it says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Again, Paul is, t- is reminding them that this is a good thing that we're praying for those who aren't just Jews or, or Gentile proselytes. This is a good thing. This is acceptable to God. This is, he's pleased by it. It's part of his will. In some ways, I think it brings God a smile on God's face. Not that God's not, uh, not that we're not his or he's not pleased, but there's a sense. I, I get this sometimes with my children. You know, when you, you tell your children, you've, you've taught them things and you've, you've told them to do things over and over. And then when you actually see them do it in place, you know, like inside that, it's just that smile just gets a little bit bigger, doesn't it? And I think in some ways when God sees us to be faithful to his word and to go and to, to pray for those of all people, I think there's in some sense as we can imagine that God just, just smiles in a greater and bigger way at our obedience to his call and dependence upon his power and strength. But look at this. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God because look at this. God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The term desire here denotes a, a, a desire of, of emotion. 
It's not necessarily a desire of his will. That is, God doesn't will all people to be saved. We know all people won't be saved. But it's the passion of his heart. The passion of his heart is that people will come to him. Now, his, his justice demands, his holiness demands that he can't just overlook sin. But the passion of his heart is that people, that he loves people, and that people would come to the Savior. See, what we have here in verse 4 is the divine desire that brought about the Son of God to take on human flesh. To veil his glory for a time, to come on, take human flesh, and that he might die in our place. It, it captures the words of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's, that's what the desire is here. It captures the idea of Christ when he was on the cross. And as the soldiers were mistreating him below, he prayed, Father, forgive them for not, they know not what they do. This desire is captured in the words of Christ when he later turned to that, that repentant thief on the cross and said, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the desire of God's heart. And the reality is when we pray for the lost, when we pray for their salvation, we begin to take our desires and we line them up with the desires of God. And as we line our desires with God, we begin to realize what the heart of God is. And as we're praying for the lost, our heart gets more in tune with God's heart. And our heart, heart begins to beat in rhythm with the heart of God. You want to draw closer to God? You want to have a greater sense of His presence in your life? Then allow your heart to beat in rhythm with the desires of God's heart. And God has a deep passion and love for those who do not know Him as their personal Lord and Savior. His heart beats for them. May we pray so that our hearts might beat in rhythm with the desires and the hearts of God. He says this, we, we also pray for, for the lost because of this. Because though the mission of the gospel is exclusive, the way of receiving the gospel, or I should say the mission of the gospel is inclusive, the way of receiving the gospel is is exclusive. That is, there's only one way. Look what it says here. For there is one God, that is, there is only one true God, not many, and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That is, there's only one who can intervene between God and man. That is Christ, who is the Son of God, who came and took on flesh, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That is, there's only one ransom. There's only one ransom payment that can satisfy the just demands of God. And that is someone who is perfect. That is the God-man, Jesus Christ. In essence, though, when we take the lost to prayer to God, we are taking them there because that is their only hope for salvation. There is no other way. So we must be taking them to prayer to God. Because that's their only hope. That's the only way. Oh, might we get a heart for that. So here's my question to you. So what unbelievers can you begin to lift up in prayer? 
particularly what are the, the unbelievers in your sphere of influence that you can begin to pray? If you look inside your bulletin, I have a challenge for you. Inside your bulletin there, a little chart. And what I want you to begin to do is I want you to begin to think through who are those people in my life, my spheres of influence, who don't know Christ yet as their Lord and Savior? And who can I be praying for? I've got a place there for five in each one. It doesn't have to be limited to that. It may be less than that. That's okay. But what family and friends? What, 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 who are the people in my neighborhood, my community, my, my city? Who are those people that I have recreation with? Who is in my workplace or who in the country? What authorities do I need to be praying for or across the globe that I need to be praying for that they might come to know Christ or that God might work in their lives, that they might make decisions that will enhance the cause of Christ. And some of you say, well, in some of these areas, I have no one, Matt. Well, there's what you do. If you have no one, you pray for someone. You pray that God gives you a friend that you can put that doesn't know Christ and that you can begin to pray for. Here's my challenge to you. What, what, if, what if we decided from, from this Sunday forward all through the summer, what if we just we took God at his word that we not only believe that, that God, that, that what we sang in the songs, that we believed in his heart, that God is all powerful, that God is mighty to save. What if we really believe that and we took action of that by actually praying for people to come to know that God who is mighty to save? What might God do? How might God use us? Can you do it? Paul goes on. He says, and for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. He says, I am telling the truth and I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. In essence, he's saying, hey, the reason we pray for all peoples is because this is the very thing I was appointed to. I was appointed to go to the Gentiles. That is all those outside of Judaism. I was called to be a preacher and a teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I read this, um, I'm reminded of our call that not only do we pray, but that we also proclaim the gospel to people. You say, well, wait a minute. I'm not a preacher and I'm not an apostle, okay? But you're not off the hook, okay? If you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, we're all called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean you will get up in front of here and do it this way. But we're called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I want to do is I want to give you a way that you can do that. It incorporates prayer and also do it in a non-threatening way. Something I learned a long time ago, and I have this in your bulletin as well, if you'll look at it with me. What if you did this? What if you just identify just one of those people, one of those people on your list that you have a, that you begin to pray for? And you just identify them, and you actually went up to them, and you said something like this. I mean, just get real crazy with them and say something like, you know, I have a ministry of prayer. How can I pray for you? Now, some of them are going to do a little double take, okay? Because they'll be like, where have you been? All right. And, and they, they may be lost to really what, know what to say, but you can throw out some things. Like, you know, is there a way I can pray for your family? Is there any situations that, at, at work that I can pray for you? And you take that prayer, 
And you go home and you, you pray for it. And at the same time as you pray for that, you're praying that they come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then you go back and you go back a week or a couple weeks later, a month ago later and say, hey, how's that going? I've, I've been praying for that. And see, what you do is you come at them not with just some agenda, all right, but you come at them with a genuine concern for where they're at. And you're already putting yourself into spiritual conversation with you. Matter of fact, there's not a many atheists. Matter of fact, if an atheist gets sick enough, he'll want you to pray for him, okay? What if we did that? What if we all each just took one person out of this chart and we just said, you know what, I'm going to approach them I'm going to ask them how I can pray for them. I'm going to enter into their life spiritually and we pray for them. You think that God that's mighty to save could, could maybe change their heart? That God could maybe open up some doors for you to not only share prayer with them, but what they need most, the gospel of Jesus Christ? He can Matter of fact, what we do is we bring God to bear on that relationship with that person. We bring the only one who can truly bring them from a place of darkness into light into the situation. I challenge us to do that. I challenge us this summer, from this Sunday forward and throughout the summer, that we, we might do this. I challenge even some of you, this is something I've done before, is I've been out at restaurants before and had lunch and the waiter or waitress comes up, and I just say, hey, how can I pray for you? And they'll do a little double take at you, all right? And a lot of times, and I remember one time they had to go back and they had to think about it, but they came back and they shared something with me they wanted me to pray for. And if you get real crazy, get real Jesus freak-like, okay, you can say, you know, and you just got a track stuck in your pocket, and you say, you know, here's why, because you may never see this waiter again, you say, here's why I, I want to pray for you. It's because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And you leave that, that track there with them with a big, fat tip, all right? But what you've just done is you've, you've, you've shared your care and your concern for them. And you go back and you pray for them. And someday, who knows, we may get to heaven and, God's, and, God, and then someone comes up to you and they say, you know, you prayed for me in a restaurant once. And I actually read that track. Thank you. Paul ends this. He says, and therefore I want. He goes just from urging to wanting. He says, I want this. He's passionate. You can just see him pinning away. He's getting passionate about what he's writing right now as the Holy Spirit's working through him. He says, I want men in every place to pray. And by the way, this isn't the generic word for men that refers to all people. This is the word for men. He's going to later talk about women in this, this chapter. But I think it's no doubt. He's saying, you, you men, you lead the way in this. Guys, you want to know, make your wives pretty excited about you? You start leading the way spiritually, praying for them, praying for others. And he says this, I want you lifting up holy hands. In essence, it's not so much the, the posture of prayer, but it's, it's your heart behind your prayer. Are you walking with God? And he says, I want without wrath and dissension. He says, there's got to be unity in this. In essence, he's calling for the church to become unified in this. And that's what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you us as a church, as Fellowship Bible Church. What if we just unify and we, we took God at His Word? 
And we obeyed and we said, yes, I will pray for all peoples. I will pray for the people that you have put in my life that don't know Christ. I'll be used of you, God, in this way. What if we just did that? From this Sunday all the way through the summer, what might God do? How might God work? How we see the power of God that we sing about actually taking place in the lives and the hearts of the people? Ian Bounds put it this way, and I'm going to change his words a little bit. But Ian Bounds writes, he says, The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better people. The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but through men or people. He does not come on machinery, but on people. He does not anoint plans, but people, people of prayer. My exhortation to you, fellowship, is that we might be those people. That we might pray for the lost, that we might pave a way for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be a people of prayer. And may we see God work and move to change and transform lives for his glory and his honor. Amen. Let us pray. Dear God, we come and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your exhortation to bring us back. Lord, some of this is not new. To many of us, it's not new. It's just a reminder. I know it is to me. It's a, it's a refocusing of, of our hearts and our lives, of how we ought to be moved and what we ought to be doing. Lord, I pray that we might be a people of prayer that is praying for the lost. Because, Lord, we have a God who is all-powerful and able to change and transform lives with the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that today, maybe in the next moments, they will begin to think about who it is you're calling for them to pray for. And then, Lord, I pray that there may be here some today that have no clue what I'm talking about. Because, Lord, they have not yet put their faith and their trust in this God who desires for all men to come to faith. They have not come to realize that they are a sinner in need of Savior. And they have not put their trust in the ransom that was paid by Jesus Christ on his death, his burial and resurrection. My prayer is for them today that they will come to understand their need because they're a sinner. But they'll understand their need that there is a savior for those sins. And they'll come to put their faith and their trust in Christ and Christ alone. Lord, I pray for our church here. I pray, Lord, you will move in a great and powerful way as your people turn to dependence upon you. And, Lord, I ask that you will change and transform hearts and that we might see you glorified as many come to put their faith and trust in you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray, Lord. And all God's people said.